This call is now being recorded. Hello, welcome to the V2V podcast with Shorts and Aurelius. This is the interview. Um, my name is Aurelius, and tonight we're talking with Bill Boyles. He's a writer, um, child welfare advocate, and also a survivor of what we're going to be discussing um which is what's commonly referred to as the, the troubled teen industry, um, therapeutic boarding schools, um, an area of concern that I think most people don't know about. Uh, I certainly was not that aware of kind of what goes on behind the scenes when um, parents and children are separated for a variety of reasons, and the children go into these programs. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Bill. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, so what is, what is the troubled teen industry? How would you kind of describe that whole world? Well, um, you kind of touched on it with the therapeutic boarding schools, although it's bigger than that. It's kind of a broad term for the constellation of uh, therapeutic boarding schools, residential treatment centers, uh, BRAC camps, you hear them called sometimes, boot camps, um, you know, private psychiatric facilities. Uh, there's some public psychiatric facilities. All these facilities that claim to um, treat kids or offer therapy in a residential setting away from home um, you know, the, the treatment, you know, the, the conditions that they treat vary from psychiatric problems to addictions, um, even like stuff like video game addictions, not just drug addictions, or sex addiction, addictions, food addictions. Some of them offer gay conversion therapy. Um, and, um, you know, the truth is that really, for the most part, they'll you know, they'll take your child no matter what. Um, but it's all like a kind of private network of um, treatment, quote-unquote treatment centers, um, and kind of, I guess you could call them like an alternative shadow network of juvies, private juvies, um, where uh, mostly adolescent kids are held, um, you know, at their parents' request generally. So I'm I'm more familiar with um, adult uh, rehab. Um, it's it's um, somewhat somewhat in my my field. Um, uh, I'm a uh, I've been trained as a drug and alcohol counselor, and I know that world is pretty shady. In, in large part, but I think maybe the difference is, is that uh, when an adult voluntarily checks himself into rehab with all of the problems that are associated with uh, with the rehabs in general, that that adult is always free to, to leave at any time. There's a there's something I, I like to say to uh, clients on occasion 
It's that uh, I need to punch a code to get into the building, but the door swings wide open for anybody who wants to leave. Um, there, and that is, certainly isn't the case with with children. Is is it not true that essentially the parents are signing over their parental rights to to these organizations so that uh, the organi- organization itself has uh, custody over the the kids. So, a couple of things there. One thing is, not all adults are free to leave rehab. In some cases, um, adults are involuntarily committed to rehab, either by court order um, or something. In some states in Florida, it's called the Marchman Act, where um, like family members can petition a judge to have an addict, you know, committed, or a judge can order them, like, through drug court or something like that. And one thing you notice is that rehabs that focus on that kind of business um, tend to be more problematic or engage in more problematic activities. For instance, I read a news report not that long ago about a supposed rehab where people were being court-ordered. I think it was in Oklahoma. And they were basically just forcing the the guys that were ordered there to work in a chicken processing plant. They weren't doing any kind of treatment or anything like that. Um, They were just, like, basically treating them like slave labor. And, you know, that is not an unusual – like, if you had replaced those guys with teenagers, that would be a very um, believable account of a – troubled teen industry kind of program. Um, and so sure. I think that that's part of what is the issue, is that these programs um, typically do not require any kind of due process to commit your children. In other words, there's no judge, there's no hearing. Um, it's basically just a transaction between the parent and the program where the parent comes to the program and asks them to take the kid And, of course, some programs um, say that they do vetting. Um, Some even do vetting or pretend to do vetting. Um, But in the end, the program is going to make money by taking the kid. In some cases, a lot of money. I mean, a lot of these places can cost $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 a year um, per kid. And so, you know, they have a huge financial incentive to take the kid. And so it's unrealistic to think, that they are going to be rigorously vetting kids and turning down kids that don't fit their criteria. Um, And so, um, you know, that is a lot of the problem. And then as far as the um, custody thing goes, um, you know, I hear about some programs doing that. In my experience, that is not quite, legally speaking, that's not quite what's happening. Um, Generally, what's happening is the programs are being granted like a temporary guardianship of the child. Um, so they do that so that they can do stuff like if there's an emergency, they can have the child brought to a hospital or treated medically without needing the parent's consent. Um, and um, that's not a terribly unusual or sinister arrangement. For instance, my parents um, had a friend who, a, a couple uh, who were their friends that um, had a 17-year-old daughter, and they had to move to Chicago for work. Um, my parents lived in Florida, and these people lived, um, like, a couple streets away. Um, 
and they had a daughter who was going to be a senior in high school that year, and she didn't want to have to change schools all the way to another state in her senior year, so my parents let her live at their house and continue to attend her same school. And they had one of those arrangements so that if something had happened to her, um, that they could, you know, take care of the situation. So in and of itself, it's not a, um, a terribly sinister thing, but, um, you know, the programs, you know, and, and it can be revoked by your actual parents. So it's not like the parents are necessarily signing over their custodial rights. And if they show up at the program and want to take the kid out, then the program right. will deny them or whatever. So that's right. well. You know, I'd like to make it. A, yeah, sure. I, no, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no, I'd like ahead. to make it. I'd like to make a distinction. Um, so, in, in my background, uh, going back to kind of the the, the punitive measures or the mm-hmm. the uh, the centers or treatment facilities that that there's some kind of due process involved with, where it's court ordered or like you're going to go here, you're going to go to jail. Um, that's, that's how it, I'm generally familiar with. It's more, it's more of the situation where, oh, I'm an adult. I obviously have a problem with, uh, drugs, alcohol, generally speaking. And I want to go somewhere to learn how to live differently, voluntarily, generally through insurance, uh, unless I've got the money to to pay two thousand dollars a day, yeah. you know, at times to uh, to get quote unquote treatment, and I'm not like necessarily praising that system, but <clears throat> but even even with adults, generally speaking, these these facilities are all about uh, retention, of course, because that's how they're going to earn their money. So they are going to do yeah. everything they can to keep you there. When it comes to kids, though, um, the distinction is is that, generally speaking, it's not, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not about uh, necessarily a legal thing. It's just that the parents are, with their authority, are saying, here's my kid, here's the funds to pay to take my kid, we're going to sign, um, agree to, um, a consent agreements so that, that essentially we're, we're going to back off and you can, you can make some of these decisions that concern my child because this is quote unquote, uh, therapy. So, uh, I can understand why any place like that would do their utmost to, uh, both keep the child there against their will or otherwise, um, or convince convince the parents that it's in their in their and their children's best interest to to continue. Now, um, well, if I could, you yeah, go ahead. Really important things there, right? And one is the idea that you know the question of. Who is the client and what is the product? So in a voluntary adult rehab where the the person who's being treated can leave at any time, um, they are the client and the treatment is the product. And so the financial incentive in that case is 
to give the client the best experience possible so that they will stay and continue paying. But in one of these other pro these teenage programs, the child is not the one paying for the treatment. The parent is. And so in that case, because of that arrangement, in effect, the parent becomes the client. Uh, the parent is the one that seeks the, pro the treatment. Uh, the parent is the one that's paying, and so the parent is um, is the client. And so because of that, the treatment is not the product anymore. The child is the product. Um, and so what they are selling is um, they are selling you, you know, the kid that you want or the kid that you wish you had. Or, you know, they're – so, you know, what they are selling is not – the treatment, they are selling the fact that they're going to fix your kid um, right. from whatever problem, real or imaginary, that they can convince you that exists. And so um, that changes the dynamics so much. It's, you know, it reminds me in a way of Facebook where, you know, you're not paying to use Facebook. You're not the client of Facebook. The advertisers are the client of Facebook. You are the product <laughs> right. that Facebook is <laughs> offering to the advertisers, Right. And so, that's right. and that's what's going on in these teenage programs, right? And so the incentive is not to um, keep the kid happy or treat the kid well. The incentive is to keep the parent happy. And how you do that is by um, coercing what we like to call the, the parent, the program testimonial. And if you go to these websites for these places, you'll see over and over, you'll see one phrase, uh, such and such program saved my life or saved my kid's life. Um, and ultimately, that's how these programs attract more business. And so that is what they're set up to produce. They're set up to produce kids that are going to tell mommy and daddy whatever they want to hear to get out because it's horrible. They're going to tell them, oh, thank you for sending me. I'm so sorry. I love you. You know, whatever it takes to get out of that abusive, terrible situation. Um, and they're going to you know, give the program glowing reviews so that they can suck in more parents. And, you know, um, and when you think of it that way, you realize that the best interests of the child are not going to be foremost in these programs' minds. You know, um, you know their focus is the parents. And so um, to that end, and that's why you get stuff like the restriction of communication with the parents because – you know, and that that's a typical process. These places censor letters. Um, they listen in on phone calls. When I was in my program, um, you had to be in the program for several months and go through a bunch of stuff and earn a certain level, you know, by behaving and following the rules and all this, to even earn a phone call with your parents. It was 10 minutes, and you sat down in a room across from a staff member, and it was a telephone with two headsets, and they silently listened on one, and you were talking on the other, and they had their hand on the cradle the entire time. And the second you would cross the line, they would hang up that phone call. Um, and then you would, you know, obviously be facing some penalties for crossing the line. And, you know, if you look at handbooks, a lot of it is focused on your kids are going to tell you they're being abused. They're going to tell you all this horrible stuff. It's not true. They're just manipulating to get out. Um, and that's right. the danger. So. Um, sure. You know, when you're this sounds all kid. very familiar. This sounds yeah. all very familiar with, <laughs> with even with with adults. But let me uh, let me switch it up a little bit. And um, sure. So we understand the 
the mechanics of getting someone there and keeping them there. So okay. let me I want to play devil's advocate for a moment and say okay. well well that's all you know that's all normal and 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 this this is kind of the way these facilities operate. It may not be it may not be the best um way to do things, but it's the effective way to do things and so but but my kid is a problem and what I want to know is is what what the problem is like with the place like like because from all I can see all the testimonials all of the the glowing reviews that you were referring to it seems like a reasonable place if I put myself in the position of someone who has an obnoxious kid or a kid who's on sure. uh, quote unquote drugs or you mean a teenager, a regular a teenager, old. right? I've got a teenager, and I don't know what to do with him, right? Yeah. So, so I've got the resources to do this. You know, I need a break. So, what's the problem? Like, what, what's really going on in these therapeutic environments, quote unquote therapeutic environments, that is is the issue? Because just because. Just because I'm restricted in phone calls and in in movement and um, you know the things that I want to do as opposed to the things that I need to do, you know maybe that's okay. Um, but what I so I want what I want to hear from you is is why these places, generally speaking, and I, I guess we have to be general unless you want to. Because getting specific, I guess one institution. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, is, let's talk <laughs> but generally, but but generally speaking, so what? And I kind of already know some of these answers, but what's the what's the problem with these places? Like, what do they actually do to these kids? Well, let's start with one thing. Let's say you're the parent of an obnoxious child or whatever a child on drugs. So the teenager. first question, yeah, teenager. <laughs> right. So let, let's 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 not lose sight, and you know. I mean, unfortunately, in this country, we have criminalized teenage behavior, normal teenage behavior to a lot of extent. But, you know, I mean, every generation freaks out about their teenagers. I mean, in the 60s, it was, you know, uh, you know, people freaking out because their kids were hippies or whatever. And now what are these hippies doing? They're lawyers. No, the Egyptians. Yeah. 6,000 years ago, the Egyptians, the hieroglyphs, wrote it on the walls. Yeah. Uh, Our children aren't listening to us any longer. Yeah. Seriously. so, yeah, and, I mean, this is the human condition to have angst about the generation that comes after you. Of course. So, so you know, I mean, teenagers, what is teenage the, – the teenage years are a time to explore. They're a time to rebel. Uh, they're a time to find yourself. And sometimes – and I'm not trying to minimize. Sometimes kids do get hooked on drugs. Sometimes they do engage in dangerous behaviors. I'm not claiming that all kids that get sent to these programs were just engaging in teenage behaviors, but some of them were um, it's, you know, but even the case of like a, like let's say your kid is on drugs. Um, I mean, when we say drugs, I mean, that's a big thing. Are they smoking a, and joint every now and then right. or having a beer every now and then? Or are they shooting up heroin or smoking crack? You know, I mean, that's a big range. Oh, my kid's on so drugs. It certainly is. But regardless, yeah. regardless, I want some, I want some help. Uh, yeah. I, but I, so, I want some like, Empathetic, effective help, like the sure. kind of thing that I'm reading in your brochure on the internet. You know, so what? <laughs> yeah. What What is my kid really in for when he shows up there? 
So, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I can tell you about my experience. So when I got sent to the program, um, you know, it started with waking up. And so first, the first question is, how do you get your kid there? Um, right. You're not, you're not going to sit him down and be like, I'm sending you to this program and, you know, I mean, all the jet skis on the brochure cover in the world are not going to convince the kid to go to this program for the most part, right? True. Sure. Remember, sure. they're a rebellious teenager. Even if it sounded great, they would probably tell you to F off. So, I'm not going to leave my – yeah, I'm not going to leave my yeah. friends and my own so, activities and no. So, so for a reasonable fee, say a thousand, two thousand bucks, the program – sometimes five – the program will arrange to have what they call transporters come get your kid. Um, you know, these are people that are like off-duty cops or retired cops or usually like some kind of a law enforcement or private investigative background. They show up in your house. They essentially privately arrest your kid, which is what happened to me. Um, I woke up one morning, about 5 in the morning, like three dudes busted into my room. They put me in handcuffs. They dragged me out of the house. Um, and they threw me in the back of the car, and they took me to the airport, and they hauled me from one airport to another um, at threat of being tased. Um, you know, all the way to Utah, which is like kind of the, um, the, the epicenter of all this stuff, um, is, you know, in Utah. And, um, you know, when I got to the program, it was, um, a short-term intake facility that was operated by the chain of programs that I went to called, uh, WASP, the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, Took me in. They stripped me naked. They made me use flea shampoo and or de-lousing shampoo, and um, then they um, put me in like a hospital robe, and it was too short. And hmm. um, you know, my butt was hanging out. My, I mean, not to be graphic here, but my, right. uh, my, I'm a 14 year old boy. I was a virgin. Um, I was not experienced in the ways of the world. <laughs> And here I am in this co-ed facility in a hospital room with my ass crack hanging out and my balls hanging out, the bottom uh-huh. of my robe. And, you know, every time I sit down, my junk's on display, and I'm insecure right. about my body. And, you know, it actually took me a long time uh, to realize that that was sexual abuse. Um, hmm. Because when you think about sexual abuse, you mostly think about unwanted touching or, you know, rape. Uh, but that's not always what it is. We saw a recent case with Ben Train, who operated a program called Midwest Academy. Um, he would make the girls undress in front of him and in front of a mirror, and he would, like, kind of point out stuff about their body. And, I mean, you know, even without – and he was accused of some other stuff with other students um, that got further than that. But even without all of that, I mean, that's clearly – abusive of a you know abuse of a sexual nature that's sexual abuse and so Absolutely. any kind of sexual humiliation like that is abusive and so you know eventually they gave me my clothes back and i spent a week there and then they flew me all the way to a little country in the pacific called samoa and i was strip mm-hmm. searched again and got through the whole thing and you know i mean it's it's bad i mean this the the therapy the quote-unquote therapy that most of these programs use is attack therapy where the students are pitted against each other and they get each other, you know, feedback of a very adversarial nature and it's designed to, you know, break you down. You know, they do stuff, they throw you in a uniform, they shave your head. It's very tightly regimented, um, like at our program, stuff like speaking without permission at all could get you in trouble. Um, making facial expressions could get you in trouble. Crossing your legs is often 
against the rules. Just sitting in a chair, cross your feet, you get in trouble. Um, some of the programs that um, are, um, you know, in buildings, particularly in the U.S., have rules that if you look out a window, you are penalized as if you were trying to run away from the facility. Um, and so you're in this very tightly structured environment, um, and then, you know, your parents are told to not believe you. You have no open communication with them. Your parents are told you're a liar. So even if you did, they wouldn't believe you. And so, um, you know, all the kids are considered liars and drug addicts and all this stuff. And that's not a fair – I mean, I can probably – you can probably tell me as a drug counselor, that's not a good way to develop a therapeutic relationship. Um, no, no, there's a concept, there's a concept that we use, um, uh, called, um, uh, excuse me, let me, uh, gather my thoughts here. It's called, uh, unconditional positive regard. So, <clears throat> basically, as an adult solving a problem, oh, by the way, uh, when we, when we do a, what we call a body scan or, or basically, uh, disrobe, We'll get a, a visual of you to make sure you're not bringing drugs into the facility. It's only with um, men looking at other men and women looking at other women only ever. And so I mean, even even the level of like respect in that sense is greater than than with with, a, with an adult like examining a, a young lady. Uh, man, well, and you it, know. it bears uh, point out that when you're doing that, you're doing that to an adult who can Right, and that's the that's the important part too. These are adults, and but the, the thing I was referring to about uh, unconditional positive regard is that when someone has a problem where they're they're in quote unquote flight mode, like they want to get out of there, like the idea is that you listen to them take into account what they're saying, have some empathy for the situation, and tell them that they're okay. Like, that's cool. Like, it's okay to have these feelings. It's okay to it's okay to look out the window and, and want to go home. Like, that's okay. There's a, you know, like, like I said, in these other cases with adults, I think this is a good contrast, too, um, <clears throat> is that these people are, are here for a reason. Um, and a lot of times with children, they may not even be aware critically of the reason they're there other than what someone told them, I guess, in a lot of respects. So I get, <clears throat> so that's different too. Um, yeah. But this is all very, it's all very disturbing to me. I'm, I'm getting like, you know. Uh, upset. Well, yeah, <laughs> no. it is disturbing and it is upsetting. I mean, and to think that you could somehow develop a helpful relationship with a child when that relationship started with kidnapping them and telling them that, you know, they're a terrible person or that their family doesn't want them in the family unit anymore. I mean, that is not going to develop a helpful therapeutic relationship. And so, what they do is they make up for it with all the rules um, right. and a lot of mental conditioning that, you know, you could probably, without exaggeration, in many cases called brainwashing. Um, in some cases, it involves cultish um, large group awareness training seminars, like LGAT seminars. These are like um, the most popular examples are like um, LifeSpring, 
landmark forum uh esque um you know and um you know they're very cultish um and so they use that to kind of brainwash the kids and they um they condition certain privileges like being able to communicate with your parents um upon completion of these um of these i mean essentially brainwashing sessions right now are most of these places sorry uh are most of these places are most of the facilities or in your experience like run like peer-to-peer um where where they're like the older more leveled up advanced kids like um do they run it so what's usually really common, you know, I'm not going to say it's universal, but a very common arrangement is that you have kind of four levels of people at the program. So there are kind of the administrators at the top, the you know, like the executives, um, the program director, the owner, that kind of thing. And then you have right. a level of staff below them that are everyday staff, like what you might consider, um, you know, techs at a rehab, sure. you know, the people right. that are with the kids day to day. Um and uh you know, you also have like your, you know, counselors, therapists, whatever they call them, mm-hmm. um, you know, family uh family representative, case manager, all those kinds of stuff, right? Gotcha. Um and then um uh and then below that you have a level of privileged kids that are still in the program that are usually called something like junior staff or interns or something of that level. So they have been there a while. They have moved up in the levels. They have a certain amount of trust. Um, like in a jail, you would call them a trustee. Um, they kind of have a, a limited authority over other kids in the program, but they've got that sword of Damocles hanging over their head where if they mess up at all, they get dropped all the way back to the bottom. They're not right. Um they're not right. free to leave usually. They, you know, they're not um they're not really um you know, they're still in the program. They're still subject to the rules, but they have some authority over the other children. That's the new well, ones the lower level ones. It occurs to me that there that these these levels of okay, so you have the staff and then you have the like the operational adults uh or that who run who who manage the quote unquote program yeah. with levels of coercion so yeah. that so that the senior <clears throat> the senior kids um have gone through have run the gauntlet of, of being having to to go up levels to get to a certain place of uh relative freedom or um or accountability I don't yeah. know what the right word is but but they're under pressure by the program itself to enact abusively uh, abuse they're, they're on, on the younger kids and if they don't yeah they can they're get knocked they, down too so exactly. so there's that there's that system of of enclosed coercion. kind of coercion yeah. and, and, and so uh, what What's that seems to be the biggest problem. Like, so then they feel complicit when they get out. They feel guilty. They feel complicit, and it makes them less likely to speak out about what happened. And that's why people are called survivors. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I get yeah. it. I so, get it. Yeah. So I mean, because you know, if you even under you know coercion, like 
you know, if you kind of did what you had to do and play the game, it became an upper level. And I did that. You know, I ended sure. up, like, graduating the program. I went through the whole thing. I was there almost – I was there 30 months, almost to the day, mm-hmm. and wow. two and a half years. And so, you know, and so I have a lot of guilt, and I still do, over some of the stuff that I did as an upper level because I was trying to go home. But in the end, I was not the one that <laughs> – you know, put me in that situation. So, um, you know, I, you know, I mean, and so that makes, that makes the kids feel complicit in the abuse. And so one of two things happens. So they either feel guilty and they feel like they, you know, not okay to speak out, right? Or they sign on wholeheartedly and, you know, and they, they kind of get on the train. And so, um, you know, and become you know, full supporters or whatever. And so either way, that insulates the program from, you know, criticism once the kids get out. Because, you know, the program knows you can only keep the kids for so long. I mean, they're going to turn 18 mm-hmm. and leave. And so, and then you don't have any control over them. And so, right. um, you know, uh, a lot of it is structured towards making sure that, kids are not a pro a problem like you know exerting that control after you leave the confines of the program yeah. right you want to get the kids indoctrinated as possible so that when they yeah. leave, yeah. they're going to they're going to say yeah it was really beneficial for me because because well, they're forced almost forced to because if if they say otherwise then there's an amount of shame that's going to go along with that like sure. in their in their peer group, in their community, with their parents. Yeah. Um, and, and their and their parents are going to be pissed, right? They're like, well, what have yeah. you done with my child? Well, and a lot of, I paid for. Sure. Yeah, and a lot of these kids come out, like, and if they're not 18, right, then they can be sent back, which is a right. huge threat. And even if they are 18 or, or whatever, they often are still kind of um, – under their parents' financial support. And so they're dependent on their parents financially. And so, you know, they don't have the freedom to kind of say what they think because, you know, they are having to dance for their dinner, basically, right? Um, the other interesting right. thing is that research shows that in these kinds of behavioral modification programs where they enforce the rules rigidly and um, kind of put that structure on, it does produce a behavioral change um, for a little while. So most research shows that within six months to a year, so most kids come out, they toe the line, they, they continue to kind of live by the structures that they learned in these programs, and then what happens is gradually that fades over six months to a year, and they kind of they break a little rule here and nothing happens. And they break a little rule there and nothing happens. And basically they kind of untrain themselves, deprogram themselves over that six months to a year. But a lot of times they still have to be putting on the front of, you know, being the good kid because, you know, maybe they went to college and their parents are paying for that or maybe they are a, a huge emotional mess because of all the trauma that they've been through and they're still being supported financially by their parents or whatever. But Well, that makes both, sense. Yeah. It, it makes sense because, because uh, well, to touch on something you said, like, so you, good or bad, and and generally, I mean, from what my understanding is, is that coercive environments 
aren't aren't beneficial regardless. But when when you leave that structured environment and you're out again in the quote unquote real world, there's no one there's no one out there that's going to toe the line for you. Yeah. You don't you've lost all that authority that you might have had yeah. once you once you were approaching graduation from one of these programs. No one's going to care about what you want them to do. And and so I can understand how there'd be this internal conflict with someone getting released from one of these programs and then like flung out into the world again and then not having any sort of bearing on reality as it relates to themselves and other people. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of conflict that that uh, comes up probably fairly quickly with with a lot of these uh, young adults who are, get launched back out into the world after going through this. Like, um, and I know this for a fact from people that I I know and, and some anecdotes that I've been told about years and years and years and and of of struggling with how to navigate the real world because so much of that time as a, a a young person was spent in these environments yeah and and, and you don't actually get a chance to acclimate to what the real world is really like sure and we yeah. also see this with people exiting my prison i mean we have a word sure. for it institutionalized there right and so the other interesting thing is what is the other consequence of that so these these kids are emotional wrecks they're traumatized um you know they feel alienated from their friends and family because you know you've been gone a year two years your friends have moved on they've got a whole new set of uh, experiences inside jokes and all that and you don't really right. fit in with them anymore because you know you're the weird thing. kid who got sent away yeah. right yeah and so so you're isolated you're uh emotionally traumatized some physically traumatized um often and so, and then what's the other consequence of that, right? So, the whole time you're in the program, you often are, the program represents itself as mainstream psychiatric help. That's how they represent themselves to the parents. That's how they represent themselves to their kids. And so, right. you know, these people call themselves counselors or therapists and then tell you literally that you're a piece of shit straight to your mm. face or that mm. you deserved to be raped or that you need to mm-hmm. take some accountability for being raped or abused or whatever it is, right? And sure. so you are, these kids are, you know, they come out and they are, um, you know, terrified or angry or both of the psychiatric or mental health treatment community. And so they're not going to seek out a therapist because they expect that when they walk into the therapist's office that the therapist is going to yell at them, Right. They expect that psychiatrists are out to have them committed or to just force pills down their throat, right? They right. Um, they don't have any understanding that this is these practices are, you know, not really in line with what most psychiatrists or counselors or therapists would consider best practices or even acceptable practices, right? And True. so. And so they're unlikely, they, you said, and, I mean, let's be honest, like, you know, to get sent to one of these programs, you're probably, I'm not saying everyone is mentally ill or anything like that, but, you know, you, you probably 
have a higher incidence of mental illness in this population than the population at large because, you know, mental illness, particularly undiagnosed, untreated mental illness, is likely to lead to the kinds of behaviors in adolescence that get kids sent to these programs, right? And not, so, to, not to mention... Yeah. Not to, mention the, the, not to mention the undiagnosed, untreated mental illness of the parents who send them there. Sure. Like, and, it's, right? Be, yeah. I mean, because and there so, is some, there is some accountability there too, obviously. Oh, yeah. That, you know, we don't like the idea that you can dispose of your child if it's quote unquote too much or, um, I mean, we'd go on for another hour with that, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's but funny. No, how it's, it's important to, to it's important to remember that too. That uh, yeah, that that I don't want to I don't want to place any like not not just like not much, but any judgment on on these kids who who are sent to these programs at all. Like it's not fair. Um, I don't know. We don't. We can't know the real story behind why they were sent there. Like we'll, in a lot of cases, we'll never know. But the important thing is, is that what happens while they're there, and then what happens to them once they leave. And um, I think um, I think I want to wrap it up. But okay. I, but thank you uh, for talking. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Vax. He's a um, he's no. a He's a New York author, lawyer, um, child advocate, and he he does what um, – he's a law guardian. And he'll take on like 50 kids at a time, um, children who were abused, uh, under 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 his uh, guardianship. Like um, a guardian. To, to be able, right, to be able to remove them from these bad environments. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a quote I want to uh, – leave off with because it's it's interesting and, and I, I've spoken to um, someone about this before this is regarding the, the term survivors mm-hmm. and what his take on this is is I think it's interesting because it, it provides maybe some hope uh, for people who have gone through this kind of thing and, and the quote is I believe that many people who were abused as children do themselves and their entire struggle a disservice when they refer to themselves as survivors. A long time ago, I found myself in the middle of a war zone. I was not killed, hence I survived. That was happenstance, just plain luck, not due to any greatness of character or heroism on my part. But what about those raised in a POW camp called childhood? Some of those children not only lived through it, not only refused to imitate the oppressor, but actually maintained sufficient empathy to care about the protection of other children once they themselves became adults and were out of danger. To me, such people are our greatest heroes. They represent the hopes of our species, living proof that there is nothing biogenetic about child abuse. I call them transcenders because surviving, i.e. not dying from child abuse, is not the significant thing. It is when chance becomes choice that people distinguish themselves. Two little children are abused. Neither dies. One grows up and becomes a child abuser. The other becomes a child protector. One passes it on. One breaks the cycle. Should we call them both by the same name? 
not in my book. Pretty powerful. Yeah, that's a great quote. It really is. And uh and I wanna do uh as much as I can to to really t- like do even a little bit to stop these practices and to to at least bring awareness to people of what regarding what's really going on. And uh you know, even if it's just even if it's just one person and and we bring awareness to that one person, they're gonna tell somebody else and it will it will it will um you know grow silently perhaps but exponentially. I think that if we can be upset in this country about uh immigrant immigrant children who are torn away from their parents at the border for whatever reason, regard regardless of the reason, we yeah. should be equally as upset that there's an industry devoted to tearing children away from their parents in this country. There's like it's, yeah. it's shameful. And well, uh, um the irony has not been lost on our community. <laughs> Right, uh, right. I, I and, can and that's not to say, like, I feel for those kids so much, um, you know, but it, you know, it is. It's, this is not new. It's just a different twist on an old story. So, you know, right. and, and even the, the troubled teen industry as it exists now is a twist on an old story of uh, the Indian boarding schools, Um and the you know that the United States ran and in Canada um uh, that they had, and so you know this is something that we are going to continue to repeat as a society until we decide that we are going to protect the rights of children um, you know even against their own parents absolutely well let's let's keep on protecting the rights of children, thanks, Phil. Um, hey, and if I could just say real quick, if people want sure. to learn more, they can check out our website. Um, it's waspsurvivors.com. That's W-W-A-S-P. Um, and, uh, you know, they can check all that out. We've got survivor stories. We've got research. We've got detailed information on all the different programs from that network. And, um, you know, they can reach out to us there as well. We will uh, we will put all that information in the in the show notes so that people can link directly off of the uh the video um and uh so yeah just you can just email me that information and i'll uh i'll include it in the uh in the video description when i when i post this up on youtube terrific man thank you thanks bill i appreciate it have a good night bye bye